following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. What do all these have in common? The skin doctor with sores all over his face. The English teacher who cannot spell. The dentist who has only three corroded teeth left in his mouth. The referee, of course, probably from the team that's opposing your team, who cannot see. They all have in common is that they all lack credibility. Your life not only sends a message, but your life is a message. In fact, it's a message of what you truly believe. No one expects perfection, but the moment that you were saved, Christ transformed you and empowered you to live more like Christ on an increasing basis. How you speak, how you give, how you love, how you trust will be different than those who are not born again. It will be. In fact, this is intensified with leaders The main ingredient of leadership is living a life worth following. And the greatest aspect of parenting and discipleship is being a model who can be followed and imitated. As a Christian, your lifestyle as a messenger of the gospel should affirm the message of the gospel. In fact, Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 says you're to walk worthy of of the gospel. Live a lifestyle worthy of the gospel. It should be obvious to all that God has transformed you. True gospel is by grace from God, but it will transform you once you possess it. This is the contrast that the false gospel requires you to change in your relationship and in your behavior in order for you to gain salvation. And so therefore, that defines actually those two contrasts, the battle that is now facing the Galatian churches and the hearts of the church attenders there in Galatia, the salvation by grace or a salvation by works. Modern politics teaches us that those teaching the salvation by works are going to attack their opponent, Paul. They're going to malign him who teaches that salvation is by grace, not works, not law, not ceremony, in order to undermine his message. And since this message means the difference between heaven and hell, Paul's going to have to answer those accusations. And that's what we find ourselves in Galatians chapters 1 and 2. Please open your Bibles if you're not there already. Follow along in your outline, because in chapter 1 and 2, Paul is massively personal This is biographical in chapters 1 and 2. He defends the true gospel of grace through faith alone, and he must defend his apostleship since they're attacking the messenger in order to undermine the message. Last week we found out that the true gospel of grace alone, by faith alone in Christ alone, comes only from God. It is his message that he revealed to the apostles. In fact, he told us that in verses 12, 11, and 10 last week. And now, in the remainder of chapter 1, Paul explains how his life and his testimony, you're going to hear today, strongly supports the message that Paul proclaimed to them. 
So if you would, listen and read silently verses 13 to 24 as I read it out loud from the scripture and from the outline as well. It says this, verse 13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, verse 15, had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And there for three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God, I am not lying, that I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by the sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us, is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me, Paul says. As Paul and Barnabas, he's describing what's happened. He went on the first missionary journey, and as they're on their way home to Antioch, these Judaizers swooped into those same baby churches and began teaching a works gospel. The Judaizers were teaching the Gentiles that they must become Jews in practice first before they could become Christians. And Paul had taught the new believers in these new churches that salvation was by grace, through faith, nothing extra in Christ, without Jewish customs, without practices, without laws, without circumcision. And these Judaizers were so adamant about their particular gospel that they were maligning Paul. And this is the kind of things they were saying. They were saying, Paul isn't even an apostle. I mean, did he walk around with Jesus? No, this is all after the fact. Uh, they would say stuff like, Paul just invented the message of free salvation in order to make salvation easy for everybody. Paul's a people pleaser, you know. In fact, they'll say, Paul got it from the apostles, but he messed it up. Or they'll say, Paul gave you only part of the gospel, but not all of it. We Judaizers, we're giving you the rest, the complete gospel. And they would say things like that. So to answer these personal attacks, and again, why would Paul normally, how would he respond? He wouldn't answer these questions. But these questions involve heaven and hell. These questions involve your eternity. These questions involve the future of the Christian faith as it's now forming in the early church. And therefore, he has to answer these questions. He has to. And so what he does, he basically answers them with, uh, you know, uh, showing them that their accusations are impossible and, and how certain events before he was saved, while he was saved, and after he was saved actually prove his message was sourced only in God. And so verse 13 and 14, Paul basically tells you, I'm not the one who invented this gospel of grace because before his conversion, he was the main opponent of the gospel of grace. Are you getting it? He couldn't invent it because he was the one trying to destroy it. And so point number one in your outline, he gives you before Paul was saved, his pre-conversion evidence. What happened before 
he was saved, actually demonstrates that Paul didn't make up the gospel of grace. He wanted to wipe it out. Verses 13 to 14, take a look. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Now, this is really strong language here. What you have, right out of the gate, Paul is reminding the Galatians, you know of my former life. You all know what I was. The Galatians already knew that Paul's pre-conversion life was basically a works-based salvation of a zealous Pharisee. They know that. Prior to meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul was running from God. Oh, he was a religious guy, but he was running from God. Externally, like many of your friends and many of your relatives, Paul was convinced he was acting in God's service. I'm doing God's work. But in reality, Paul was actually rebelling against God. And in his misguided zeal, Paul had taken up the mantle of a fanatical Pharisee bent on destroying Christians. And Paul and his religious cronies, his elite colleagues, all viewed the followers of Christ, you, me, those Galatian believers, as a heretical sect of Judaism. That's how they looked at us. In fact, Christ... And the gospel of grace is the heart and the hope of all Jewish believers, in fact, all Jews. But for a rigid Pharisee, salvation by grace seemed like an attack on Judaism. It really did. Instead of working hard to follow the law, attending the festivals, and trusting in the continual sacrifices uh, to be right with God and earn your salvation, Christians now trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Christians view Christ as the Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins. God alone did all the work of salvation once and for all. That's different than what a Pharisee thought. Way different. And that truth is massively difficult for people who believe they have to earn their salvation. When you say Jesus accomplished it all and God gives it to you, that is actually an attack, are you ready, on human pride. Right? We think we can do it. We think we should do it. We think we have to do it. And God says, you not only can't, you shouldn't. There's no way. And the Pharisees were the most proud of all. Paul reminds the Galatians and all, you know, who know him that he was a Jew of the first order. Take a look at Philippians chapter 3 there in your outline. It says he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was a serious follower of the Jewish faith, right? Serious. In fact, his devotion made him the enemy of true salvation by grace. The Judaizers are saying, Paul, he invented it. He made it up. He got it wrong. Paul says, I didn't invent it. I wanted to wipe it out. I wanted to destroy it. What's he say? Look at verse 13, second half. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond what? Beyond measure, and I tried to say it out loud, destroy it. This is shocking language. It really is. I wish you could read it in the original here. Before he was saved, Paul was hateful and hostile. To, to say he persecuted meant it was continually ongoing intent to do harm. He never gave up. Sometimes you get mad and you, you know, then you overcome your anger or whatever. He was not overcoming. He kept going at it. 
The word destroy there, this is a very graphic word. It was used of soldiers who ravaged a city to the uttermost. In fact, Paul was determined to utterly destroy the church. And notice, Paul uses the title church of who? The church of God. He uses that phrase to let you know that that Paul's attack against Christians was not an attack against Christians, it's an attack against who? God. He's attacking God. It's against God. And before Christ, religious, zealous, law-keeping Saul, Paul, was against God. He was more savage, more committed against the gospel of grace, are you ready, than the Judaizers were. Paul was way more against the gospel of grace than the Judaizers are. And Paul's heart was hard. He'd heard one of the first deacons, Stephen, pour out truth, pour out gracious love. And yet, they laid his coat at his feet because he was the one that led the crowd to stone Stephen. Paul dragged Christian moms away from their children. I don't know if you can feel the weight of this. Take a look at Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And all of that made his heart harder and intensified his hate. By the time Jesus met Paul on the Damascus Road, Paul had killed many innocent people and was on his way to arrest and imprison more. Take a look at Acts 9, 1 and 2. Perhaps a year later, Paul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He didn't invent, he didn't alter the the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Paul's the one seeking to destroy it to the utmost. And while he was so hateful, he reminds the Galatians, he appeared godly, he appeared religious, he appeared holy, like a Judaizer. Paul spent his entire life seeking to live all the Jewish customs, all the traditions. Paul surpassed everyone, everyone in his generation at being zealous for tradition. Look at verse 14. And I was advancing, he says, in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He says he was advancing. That word advancing is, you can picture this, with a machete working your way through the jungle. He's chopping his way, advancing. That's really what the word describes. Uh, So Paul kept blazing a trail in Judaism, cutting down anything like Jewish Christians who were traitors in his view, verse 14, to his ancestral traditions, And so Paul was so, verse 14, extremely zealous, he punished Jewish believers in Acts 26, 11, in all the synagogues, tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, Paul kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Do you get the idea that Paul was frothing at the mouth here? I mean, mean, come on, I'm not making these words up. This comes right out of the Bible. I mean, he is furious, he is zealous, he is trying to shut down the gospel of grace and the judaizers are saying oh no 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 he's he invented this thing and paul's saying i didn't invent it i was the one trying to kill it i was the one trying to destroy in fact i was more zealous than you judaizers were no other pharisee matched his intolerance 
for the truth about Christ and the gospel of grace, ancestral traditions refers to a, a body of oral teachings about the Old Testament law that came to have more authority than actually God's word itself, the law itself. This collection of Old Testament applications was so massive and kept followers so busy, it actually put a fence around God's word and hid it from their view. They, they no longer heard God's word. They just heard, you know, little slogans and applications and ways to do things. John MacArthur writes it this way, over a period of several hundred years, it had expanded into a mammoth accumulation of religious, moral, legal, practical, ceremonial regulations that defied comprehension, much less total compliance. It contained such vast amounts of minutiae that even the most learned rabbinical scholars could not master it, either by interpretation or in behavior. Yet the more complex and burdensome it became, the more zealously Jewish legalists revered it and propagated it. Man, the Judaizers are trying to convince the Jewish Christians to keep all those rules which Paul was doing way better than they were. So what does Paul say? I mean, what's he saying here by giving his past testimony? He's saying, been there, done that. Right? I went that route. I tried to earn my own salvation through the law. And, and, and basically, you can't make yourself acceptable to God even by the most zealous following of moral and cultural codes. It's a big fail. That's what he's telling them. He's showing them from his own life. Before conversion, Paul was the greatest religious rule keeper in the world. And he knew it. He was filled with pride. And despite of this, this is the good news. He was not only saved by Christ, but he was called to be a preacher and a leader of the faith. How about that? His testimony is a powerful witness to the beating heart of Christianity, your Christianity, the gospel of grace. Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God, working powerfully in you to transform your life. And Paul is the perfect example of salvation by grace, even though he tried to destroy it any way you look at it. Now, get this and write this down. No one can be so good, so religious, so nice, so kind, such a hard-working, religious person. No one can be so good that they don't need God's gospel of grace. Amen? I don't care how good you are. You're still going to fall short. And yet, no one can be so bad, like Paul, killing, murdering, arresting, destroying, attacking the church. No one can be so bad that they cannot receive the gospel of grace. You cannot be so good that you don't need the gospel of grace, and you cannot be so bad that you can't receive the gospel of grace. That's how we're supposed to live. Paul was deeply religious, and yet he desperately needed the gospel. And Paul was deeply murderous, horrific internally, yet he could still be rescued by the gospel of grace. That's powerful, friends, and that's what he's telling these Galatian churches. And Paul's point in reviewing his pre-conversion status is highlighting the fact that he didn't invent it. He was opposed to it. In fact, Paul didn't make any gospel easy, but was himself trying to destroy this message of grace. He had no human preparation, no earthly source for his understanding of the gospel. It is not only a message from God alone, but salvation is also by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And nothing changed once he was dramatically changed. Once he was dramatically saved, at his conversion, now verse 15 and 16, Paul didn't make the gospel easy like a man pleaser. 
he was suddenly, dramatically confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus and called to proclaim this gospel to the Gentiles worldwide, and it cost him dearly. Point number two in your outline, when Paul was saved, his conversion evidence, when he was saved. In fact, what you got here is amazing. Paul experienced the same gospel he now preaches. By the way, already, Paul experienced the same gospel he was trying to destroy. He's trying to kill it, and, and guess what? It, it actually killed him. It did. The old Paul died, right? And a new Paul emerged. It made him a new man. And so, it says in verse 15, But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Imagine that journey to Damascus, Saul later called Paul, held in his hands what accounted and what amounted to an arrest warrant. Legal permission from the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem to take Christians into custody, put them in jail. And with that permission, Saul had been deputized to carry out that order by any means necessary. You want to see what God, uh, you know, what Paul accepted as means In Acts 22, verse 4, he confesses, I persecuted this way to the death. Acts 26, 10, and when they were being put to death, I what? I cast my vote against them. Here's a man bent on death and destruction, now interrupted by the grace of God. Interrupted by the gospel. The greatest three words in Paul's testimony, do you see them there? They're the very first three words In verse 15, say it with me, but when God. Say it again, but when God. That's Paul's testimony. That's your testimony. But God interrupted your life when Paul was the worst candidate for salvation on planet earth. God broke in and saved him. Verse 15 and 16 are all about God, what God did how God saves. So what did God do to and for the arch nemesis of the early church? This is the worst guy on the planet. God set him apart. Look what it says in verse 15, who set me apart. Even while Paul arrogantly promoted a false religious work system, arresting, murdering, forcing believers, blaspheming to, to blaspheme God, he had already marked Paul for conversion. Listen, that guy at work, that is the worst guy at work, could be marked out for salvation. That teacher who is horrific in their attacks against Christianity could be the one who is marked out for salvation. That family member who you absolutely agonize and get a stomachache because they're coming over for the holidays could be the one that God has marked out for salvation. It's often the worst of us who become his children. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. Thank you for saying that. Understand, while Paul was even in his mother's womb, God called me. Long before Paul had demonstrated the least potential for anything, God already had a sovereign hand on him. Already did. From Paul's infancy on, his influences, his experiences, his education... All had been orchestrated by God to prepare him for this Gentile mission. Just like 
But God says about Jeremiah, the prophet, says, before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before he was even born. Paul didn't initiate the choice to be saved, much less the choice to be an apostle. Paul didn't work his way through the law to become a Christian. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 1.1. He was called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the what? The will of God. No person is saved. No person is called to leadership in the church except by the sovereign predetermined will of God. God graciously calls every believer to his purposes for your life. He does freely, verse 15, through his, what's he say? Grace. Goodness. By means of grace, now understand, grace is unmerited love, and I like this phrase, you might want to write it down, unnecessary kindness. Unnecessary kindness. God efficaciously brings the already elect Saul to himself in salvation on the road to Damascus, having set him apart before he could do anything right or wrong, God saw fit to intrude into his life. I mean, well, God, that's an intrusion. At just the right moment, not a day too soon, not a second too late. How many of you in this room would agree that Paul was saved just at the right sovereign moment? Anybody? Anybody agree? Okay, thank you for admitting. I'm not trapping you on anything, but I want you to feel the weight of it. What if it was your mom who was taken away to jail and she died? Would you still say that Paul was saved at the correct sovereign moment? You should. Because that's what's at stake here. That's what's going on here. I mean, God let Paul rampage before he snagged him. Right? And Paul carried the weight of that, by the way, making him the most unbelievable man because of the weight of what he had done. It made him an apostle of grace, an apostle of kindness. You look at his firm teachings and doctrines, but he was a gracious man because of what God did. The timing was perfect. And apart from anything Paul did, Paul do, or Paul would do, God called Paul on account of his own pure grace. In fact, with Paul, God's calling came in the startling form of a rare appearance of the Lord Jesus from heaven, and with it came salvation and a profound ministry that would not only shape Christianity, it would actually alter world history. Would you agree? It did. This is a key moment. And as Paul looks back at his conversion, he recognizes that God's sovereign grace was working in his life all along. Why did this happen? Why did God choose, prepare, and then call Paul the proud persecutor of his church? Was it because Paul was the in some way pleasing to the Lord? Yes or no? No. Simply because, verse 15, what? What's it say? God was pleased to do so. Write it down, circle it. God set his loving grace on Paul, not because Paul was worthy of it, but simply God took pleasure in doing so. God decided to love, and that's why. Are you ready? God decided to love him, and that's why. God decided to give him grace. This is how God works. Moses reminded Israel, look at Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you as a nation because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord, what? Loved you. Oh, come on. He what? Loved you. God does not love you because you are lovable. 
No, you're not. God doesn't love you because you're useful. God doesn't love you because you're valuable. He loves you simply because he loves you. That's the only kind of love you can ever be secure in. Since it's the only kind of love that you can't possibly lose, it's gracious, merciful love by choice. It's a decision to love you. Whether you're good or bad or whatever, it's a decision. Write this down. You are loved not because of your performance. You are loved because of God's preference. You are not loved because of your performance. You are loved because of his preference. Listen, would you start every day that we, this week this way? Would you say, I'm loved not because I'm going to perform for you, but because you preferred to love me. And it's your love that now I want to put on display. It's recognizing that I am loved. That's more important than your love, is knowing that he loves you. How did God show his love to Saul? Well, verse 15 was pleased, he says, like if you look at verse 15, to reveal his son that I might preach him. Now, Acts 9, 3-6, describes the moment Paul was approaching Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, Acts 9, and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are thou, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but arise and enter the city, and it shall be told to you what you must do. I love that. I love that. Since that moment... The subject of Paul's preaching was, verse 16, his son, Jesus Christ. The Judaizers needed to see that Gentiles don't need to hear the law of Moses. They don't need to hear the traditions of Jewish rabbis. They only need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not merely hear his son, but see his son in Paul. Look at verse 16 very carefully. Paul says, in me, reveal his son in me, interesting phraseology, are you ready? Here it comes. Paul was no longer filled with hate. Paul was not jailing mothers any longer. Paul was not angry. Paul was not arrogant. Paul was not vile anymore. Paul has been transformed by the gospel of grace. The Galatians and the Judaizers can see grace in Paul and because Paul received salvation by grace and not law. He didn't work for it. God gave it to him. God transformed him. You and I are called to speak the truth and live the truth by his spirit in us and through us. All of this is accomplished by God for a purpose. You're here for a purpose. Just like you, Paul was saved to serve. You see that there in verse 16, to preach to the Gentiles. God does not call any person to salvation that he does not also call to service. That's part and parcel with being a believer. That's who you are. In fact, every believer, Ephesians 2.10, is created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. What was Paul's service? What were the good works that he was already prepared? And what was his mission? He was going to preach to the Gentiles. Paul had literally been hating God, opposing him. But God oversaw, overruled all of that, all of Paul's knowledge, all of his zeal, all of his training, and in effect, to all his efforts to destroy the church were all being used to prepare him. First, for his conversion, and then secondly, verse 16, look at it, a preacher to the Gentiles. Now, how many of you are Gentiles in this room? Can I see your hands? 
aren't you thankful for Paul? He's the one that fought for this. He's the one that made sure that it wasn't mixed up with Judaism, that it wasn't corrupted, that it was the gospel of grace. Paul was crushed. God would break him, then prepare him to be God's instrument for what? Building his church. God had been working in a man opposed to grace to make him the preacher of grace. Don't you love God's sense of humor? This is the guy trying to shut it down, and God says, now you're going to proclaim it to the world, to the Gentile world, a world he previously disdained. Paul was called by God to reach the very people he previously tried to destroy. No human explanation can account for this. The Judaizers saying, he did this, he did this. But Paul goes, I had no choice in this. This is what God ordained me to do. It is his message I'm proclaiming, not the one that I made up. It's the one I tried to destroy. No human explanation can account for the 180 degree turnaround of Saul's life. He had been like a runaway freight train, just destroying everything in his path. His legalistic zeal had put him on a path of destruction that no natural force could stop. And there he is, his apostolic calling could only have been supernatural. God supernaturally, sovereignly stopped this freight train from ruining the church and make him the one who is now establishing the church. Totally apart from any human influence, any work, any law, any Jewish custom, whatever, any persuasion, Paul's salvation and calling prove the power of the gospel, the power of salvation by grace through faith. Paul's gospel is exactly the same one that Christ revealed to them. In fact, number three, he gives even further evidence. After Paul was saved, his post-conversion evidences, post-conversion, read verse 16 and following. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But, but I did not see any other of the apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. Now, and what I'm saying to you, I assure you, that, uh, assure you before God that I am not lying. Verse 21, then I went into regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only that kept hearing he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Now, Paul didn't get his gospel from other men. It was revealed to him by God. And his God-given gospel did check out with the gospel of the other apostles who also received it from God. It, the gospel of grace, directly from Christ. So this message is now consistent. About A.D. 38 beginning with the Damascus Road experience and encounter. Christ took Paul under his own immediate tutoring, and he was basically being established in his independence as an apostle, which was very important. He was not taught by the other apostles, but was fully equal to them. So track with me, if you would, very quickly. It goes very fast. Don't worry. Verses 16 to 24. Acts 9 informs us, that after Paul invested several days with the disciples who were at Damascus and preaching briefly in the synagogue there, he immediately started proclaiming the gospel. Paul tells you now in verse 16 that he did not consult with flesh and blood. I didn't get this from anybody. He didn't seek answers from Ananias or the Christians in Damascus. He Directly from the Lord. 
the Gentiles would be reluctant to hear a, a message and a gospel if they thought it was merely an offshoot of Judaism. And those who were the Judaizers, they needed to know that the gospel was not a, a heresy promoted by a few Jews. The gospel came directly from God. Where did the gospel come from? God. Thank you. All right. Verse 17, he went away to Arabia. He got divine and direct preparation for ministry from Christ. And after his stay in Arabia, verse 17, the apostle returned once more to Damascus, continued preaching there for a period of time, but immediately encountered persecution. It might have been the same guys that traveled with him when he was going to basically arrest people and then got saved. It could have been those Jews that actually persecuted him. But preaching in Damascus, away in Arabia alone, and then preaching again in Damascus, all while learning the Lord, praying, studying the Old Testament, all of it totaled, verse 18, three years. Three years. He's not even seen anybody, I mean anybody official, all right? Only after that, Paul went up to Jerusalem, and it wasn't the famine relief trip, it wasn't the church council trip of Acts 15, it was a special trip to meet the apostles, and really the desire there was he stayed with them, and it was really a relational time. He says in verse 19, uh, I didn't meet any others except James and the Lord's brother. And the visit was not to learn more about the gospel or get acquainted with you know, this and that. It was to visit for the purpose of getting to know one. These are the two men that are close to Jesus and were the most important apostles of the early church. So he gives his readers the greatest possible confidence that what he's writing, you know, Paul gives a common Jewish vow. He wants them to know that you can have confidence in what I'm saying. Verse 20, I assure you, before God, that I am not lying. Get it right, readers. He's either an authoritative, divinely appointed apostle, or he's a fraud. I mean, that's what he's trying to show you. You can't have it both ways. And he's correcting his opponents who claim that Paul's sincere, but his teachings are of his own personal ideas. He's affirming that his past, his conversion, and his early walk with the Lord, that it's obvious, verse 12, the last week, that he received the gospel directly from the Lord. This whole biographical section is proving verse 12. Look at verse 12. That he received the gospel from the Lord, a revelation from God. He's showing them that's impossible any other way. It had to happen that way. And Paul only visited two of them for two weeks, and only after three years had elapsed since his conversion, and now any accusation that Paul was a second-hand apostle or receiving his message merely from the Jerusalem apostles is false. After Paul left Jerusalem, verse 20, he went into, look at verse 20, to regions of Syria and Cilicia, and Acts 9 tells us that includes his hometown of Tarsus. This traveling resulted in another group of hostile Jews in Acts 9.29 were attempting to put him to death. Paul's on the hot seat right away. So from Jerusalem, he's escorted to a port city, uh, Caesarea, there in Israel, where he took a ship, most likely to his hometown, Tarsus. He preached there in Tarsus until Barnabas called him to come to Antioch of Syria. So he comes to Antioch of Syria, and there's an, a lot of amazing fruit from his ministry, a lot of resistance, but he stayed on as a teacher in the church of Antioch until the Holy Spirit set apart he and Barnabas for the first missionary journey which leads us right up to the Galatians hearing the gospel and so he's told them his story now all the way up to that particular point of where he goes on to the first missionary journey and basically during his first two visits to Jerusalem he didn't see any of the churches in Judea that's southern Israel so they don't know about Paul uh, they haven't met him personally 
But they're hearing things about him. What are they hearing? Verse 23, they kept hearing that he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. So he's doing it. It's a totally different. Now, you think that they were still a little reluctant to meet Paul? Anybody? Okay, here's a guy who, again, you saw him frothing at the mouth. This was going on for a long time. He is the most feared individual for a Christian on a human level. He is the most feared. So there is a little bit of reluctance, but yet when the Lord gave such blessing to his ministry, resulting in his own persecution, which again is intentional, right? Once Paul's persecuted, they're going, wait a minute, he's still preaching the message even though he's being stoned and all these horrific things are happening to him. He must really be converted that we can trust what he teaches. Are you getting it? So it's giving him credibility, the very fact that he's being persecuted and standing firm. So his fellow Christians could not, then no longer doubt that he was specially chosen, gifted man of God, that he is truly the apostle of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, with massive encouragement, look at verse 24, they are glorifying God because of Paul. Don't you want that? Don't you want your kids to go, we're glorifying God because of you? Sure you do. The fact that Judean believers were praising God for the very same gospel they knew demonstrates that it was identical to the one taught by the Jerusalem apostles and was truly from the Lord. Now Paul's point in all this biography, he's telling his testimony here. It's like he's up here up front, you know, on Sunday, just telling it to you. It's basically that the charges of the Judaizers were absurd. They're absurd. The church of Jerusalem was still overseen by the other apostles and the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, James, and had long already recognized Paul's apostolic office. They recognized his authority. They recognized that he was glorifying God in his ministry because of him. James, Peter, and John, the three leading apostles among the twelve, had specifically acknowledged the grace of God had been given to Paul. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, they enthusiastically gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. He's going to tell us that as we progress here. And in his second letter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter not only acknowledges Paul's divine authority, but he asserts that Paul's letters, even Galatians, even at this early date, are already recognized as Scripture. Already. The canon's not even closed yet, and they go, these are Scripture. So they understand and affirm his apostolic authority. To reject Paul's teaching, are you ready, is to reject God's word. It is. And by sharing these details on his first trip to Jerusalem, he's dealing a major blow to the Judaizers. He's trying to let them know, you know, just personal experience will show you that they have no credibility in what they're telling you. This is a false gospel. You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to follow the Jewish traditions to become a Christian. You just trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf by faith, by grace through Christ. Amen? That's what you do. Instead of what they're doing, these Judaizers, their play, grace plus works external religion, they're not turning to a purer earlier gospel of Jesus or Peter or James. They're actually turning their backs on God and embracing a false religion. They really are. The gospel is a gospel of grace. That's the true gospel. Okay? And you know what grace means, right? God did all the work for you. God accomplished salvation for you. You didn't do it. He did it. So you're looking at your notes right now. You're going, where are my three concluding points? 
You got to write them down today. That's intentional. All right. So letter A, write it down. Cry out for salvation. Cry out for salvation. Let me say it again. No one in this room is so good that you don't desperately need the gospel of grace. I don't care how nice you are, Grandma. I, it doesn't matter how sweet you, you know, your kids think you walk on water. It doesn't matter. You're a rotten sinner before a holy God. Right? No one can be so good that they don't desperately need to turn to Jesus Christ and say, save me. Awaken my heart. Give me a new heart to believe. No one can be so bad in this room or anywhere else that they cannot receive the gospel of grace. Listen, none of you were frothing at the mouth. None of you were running around trying to murder Christians. Paul was. But he was not below the gospel of saving grace. Can I hear an amen to that? That doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can surrender to Christ, and he can transform you. Cry out for salvation. Letter B, write it down. Work at your light. Work at your light. As this world declines in darkness, under the judgment of God, week after week, it just gets worse and worse and worse. He has called you to be a light. Ask God to show you how to shine. And, and look at Paul's life. His past was in preparation for a powerful future. Your health, your marriage, your crisis, your circumstances right now are a pathway to an incredible ability to shine the gospel light to this world. Amen? Everything was orchestrated in your life for you to be a light to someone. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter how you botched it in the past. You start today being a light for the gospel of grace. Today. And let her see. Stop trying to earn acceptance. Write it down. Stop trying to earn acceptance. Stop trying, Christian, to earn God's acceptance. If you are a born-again Christian, you are not loved because of your performance. You are loved because of God's preference. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's testimony. Thank you for how it proves that the gospel is the gospel of grace, not works. His whole life is evidence. And we want our lives to be that way, that we would shine as light, that we would not earn our salvation, that we would revel in the fact that all of our sin, past, present, and future has already been taken care of, that we would walk humbly and dependently, and that we'd want you to be on display and recognizing that every circumstance in our life is meant to help us be a greater light to this world. And Father, we pray, we desperately pray, that if there are one or two or three who are here who don't know you they've been in the church for years would you crack through the hardness of their religion their Christian religion and show them what it means to have a genuine relationship with you that they can be forgiven and cleansed and washed and made new and given in power to be able to walk in obedience never perfectly but in such a way that you would be pleased and shown off. 
And we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. And thank you for being our God and our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.